corn and taters. Good afternoon. You're listening to the Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and I'm here today with Dr. Christine Montross. Um, as way of introduction, um, Christine is a resident in psychiatry at Brown University. She received her Master's of Fine Arts in Poetry from the University of Michigan and has had several poems published in literary journals. While compiling this book, the book that she's currently on book tour for, Body of Work, um, she traveled to anatomical theaters, sought out holy relics, and dissected three arms, a leg, and an entire human body. She lives in Rhode Island with her partner, Deborah, and their one-year-old daughter, Maud. Um, so Christine is currently, as I said, touring for the book um, Body of Work, uh, Meditations on Mortality from the Human Anatomy Lab, published by the Penguin Group and is in town to read at Shaman Drum. The show is pre-taped, um, so Christine will already have been through by the time we're, we're listening. Uh, but Christine, welcome today. Thanks, I'm really happy to be here, well, T. Thank you for coming. Thank you. And, um, and this, is, uh, this is not your first time to Ann Arbor because uh, as we've just heard, you, you received your MFA in poetry here um, some like a, a few years ago because yeah. you've done a few things in the interim. Um, what was, did you work with Tom Lynch when you were in town? I didn't. Um, I think I preceded him, which is going to date me a little bit. But, um, <laughs> but well, I don't. I don't know. No, no, no. <laughs> so no, I'm still. <laughs> no, um, no. You're right. Ann Arbor is a place that's near and dear to my heart. I did my uh, undergraduate work here, and then stayed on and did my MFA here, and uh, and um, did not cross paths with with Tom Lynch. But um, certainly, I'm a great admirer of his essays and his work. Have you been? Have you had a long distance correspondence with him? Because I notice he he. He blurbs the back of the book, yeah. and you mention him once within the. You know, we don't influence. We don't know each other at all. Um, but I certainly, you know, I loved the undertaking, and I think those it was just a wise set of essays, and um, just especially as I was thinking a lot about mortality and the dead body, those were essays that I turned to a great deal. And uh, and as someone who works intimately with dead bodies, he was an expert in the field. So yes. um, I was thrilled when he offered to uh, to put a blurb on the back of the book, and um, and uh, and yeah, I take that as a great compliment and did you just so did you happen to read the undertaking when you were just um you you decided you went to find it for yourself when you were in a, your first year yeah I actually read it before my first year in medical school and you know one is probably predisposed to the things one re one writes about so um you know, I was interested in in the ideas about mortality and certainly anybody going into medicine I think has to wrestle a little bit with some of those ideas and uh, so his book just struck a chord to me but you know as it did with such a broad audience I think I wasn't alone in finding it really um insightful and and interesting well your book um body of work you're definitely presenting um you're really grappling with with the idea of mortality yeah. and, and taking us through um well when you were when you were here in ann arbor for the the mfa were you also did you did you start writing essays here? Did you take a creative nonfiction course or was was it a natural progression from poems to essays? Yeah, I, I didn't do any of those things. Okay. I was, <laughs> I was a, I was a pure, pure poet and, uh, you know, I'm a rotten fiction writer and uh, have great admiration for folks who do that, too. But um, no, I, I hadn't written essays before. And uh, and when I was, you know, when I first started um 
you know, the book is based on my gross anatomy class in medical school. And when I first started that first day, um, I was just really, it was a very intense experience to walk into the anatomy lab and, and see, you know, 18 cadavers lying on stainless steel tables and, and everyone in my life, friends, family, acquaintances, I said, what is it like? You know, what does it look like? What does it smell like? What's the experience like? So I, I began writing about it first as a sort of journaling for myself to try and process and make sense of some of the um, feelings that I was having during um, anatomy and in that transition into doctorhood. Um, and then once people really expressed an interest, I thought, well, I'll be. Maybe there's an audience <laughs> out there for this after all. So, uh, so that's when I started to shape it into something that was less personal and more to share. And and how and what at what point was that? Because um, in the book, it seems. Let's see. I wrote I wrote down some ideas of what this what this book was. It's yeah. a story explaining our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a documentation of a first year anatomy lab, so gross anatomy, and um, and and medical school. Because you mentioned some of the other pressures involved with being in med school. Right. Um, and uh, a history of medical advances in anatomy specifically. Um, for example, the resurrectionists and yeah. the, the people who would sell bodies and when it was, um, well, a little side business. Or <laughs> right. <laughs> and then a, a story of personal transformation um, with reflection and philosophy woven in. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds nice. <laughs> so it's, 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 all the, it's all those things. Yeah. And, and so... Um, so do you, when you think of it, Christine, do you think of it as, um, as memoir or uh, creative nonfiction or, or yeah. where, what? I do, I do really think of it as memoir. I think it was, um, it was a real journey for me. I mean, uh, the, the journey that began in the anatomy lab and then sort of continued through medical school and, um, and, you know, it was the journey of entering into medical school as a non-doc, you know, as much of a non-doctor as everyone else in my life. And then suddenly being thrown into this role where, um, one is given power that one doesn't necessarily deserve. And you're also sort of faced with this intense powerlessness. You see people with horrible illnesses and um, injuries that you're not at all equipped to help out with as a, as a first year medical student. And so um, I think the the book was very much for me, a journey through the human body as I was learning about it. It was a journey through um, medical training as I was going from a non-doctor to a doctor. Um, and, and I couldn't help but be captivated by exactly the thing you're talking about, which is there's this incredibly rich and really kooky history of anatomy. I mean, there are, um, you know, grave robberies and body snatching and people selling body parts and bodies and, and also some really inspiring, um, historical figures who risked all kinds of legal and religious persecution in search of knowledge about the human body. And I just found that, um, inspiring to be in that line of people who had dissected a human body in order to learn from it. Right. And, and, and I think you, you present, um, even in a subtle fashion that, um, that it's necessary to actually see the body changes someone and to see its movements and to, to, to open it up. And you, you even do use words like flay, like it's, it's, it's really, but it's something to see, um, uh, like liquid pour through a certain ventricle or so like there's parts of the book where you said that there were realizations that wouldn't have been possible had you just been looking at, um, sculptures or, um, or or drawings or very 
yeah. <laughs> diagrams. I think that's right. And, you know, there's a movement afoot right now. And it's hard to say, as with many movements, how much steam it's going to gather. But to transition to a more technology-based teaching of anatomy where folks are... Um, Looking at 3D, you know, our imaging right now is just fabulous in terms of CAT scans and MRIs and, and computer reconstructions. And so to sort of take these three-dimensional images and have students lose, uh, learn from that, which obviously is much less expensive, uh, it's easily reproducible. Um, but I really do feel as though something integral is lost in that um, transition. And so I feel like, um, first of all, exactly what you mentioned, which is there's something magical about holding in your hands a human body's structure, like a heart or lungs or a stomach, and, and physically seeing and feeling um, how it's meant to work. There's wonder in that, and also it really registers from an educational standpoint, so you can completely understand the function when you when you watch how it works um, and you explain it's also part of one of the the, um, the, the coping or the the things that you you must uh, the transformations a, a person has to go through to become a doctor in order to stand in front of people and um, talk about their bodies and the diseases without um, with a sense of uh, distance that's right but empathy like that would be a necessary part of if you're just looking at images on a screen it's hard to imagine that you could use your imagination to actually truly understand what that would be i think that's right like. T. i think you know um as doctors were asked to see people in crisis and um and we all have normal human reactions to that. It's a normal human reaction to be terrifically upset when you see someone that is horribly maimed. It's a normal human reaction to be emotionally upset when you learn that someone's going to die. Um, those are our normal human reactions. And yet there's a responsibility as a physician to contain your own response um, so that it doesn't become additional an additional burden on the patient. Right. And, and some of that's very practical. I, I, if I, you know, God forbid I'm in an accident, I want the trauma surgeon who takes care of me not to be focused on what a mess my face is, but to be focused on how to put it back together. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, that's a, that's a hard line to find the line between uh, retaining enough empathy so that you don't come across as cold and detached, which is, you know, none of us wants that in a doctor. We want a doctor who empathizes and who um, understands the horrific experience that sometimes brings us to a hospital. And yet, um, I think you're exactly right the, that anatomy serves a purpose in sort of desensitizing um, medical trainees to um, the real confrontation with mortality and the human body that that they will inevitably have and and in the in the writing when you said you were journaling in, in, as a way to kind of process and try to understand maybe the experience that you were having because on that first day you say that you actually hold a human heart in your hand yeah. on the first day it's not as if you pick your lab coat and that takes a few hours right. and you just look at the bags and unzip them and it's like you are actually having to hold the heart on the first day yeah. which seems very symbolic and and um and it seems like um you because you're a poet it seems like this is what um i wonder if if you you were th seeing the symbolism there um and more than others were that you were surrounded with because I ask this only because um, I'm, I'm trying to understand how many years this book was in the making yeah. so the, the growth of the journals 
and also a friend of mine who is a doctor, I was asking her about, um, because it's so reflective, your book. And she said, well, honestly, I was just thinking, what do I, I I have to just know all this stuff. I just need to get it done. What do I need to know to get through this? She's like, I was not reflecting very much. And so I think it's very interesting because as a poet, I wonder if that um, completely informed the experience and, and took you to the journals and the writing to understand it. Um, I think that's hard. It's hard to tease out, um, you know, why one responds a certain way to something. And I think um, certainly writing has always been something in my life that's been a means of helping me order and process the world. So um, it's something that I naturally turn to as a sort of catharsis at times and a a way to make sense of things and um, to draw conclusions about the universe. You know, I try hard to wrestle with it. And certainly um, it's a futile act a lot of the time. (laughs) But um, but I think um, that was that that was a pure coping mechanism for me initially just because it's a it's a wild experience to walk into a room and and cut open a dead person i mean that you know it sounds very blunt to say it but it's a it's um it, it it's not something that you do every day and and i think i was just confronted with a lot of questions it raised up a lot of um just new beliefs for me about mortality that i hadn't really thought about before and really called into question a lot of my um my understanding of death and what happens after death. And, um, and so I think it was really a means of trying to sort that out in the way that I would have sorted out, you know, who I should be friends with when I was seven. Right, <laughs> right. Oh, that's a good um, way of putting it. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's just the way that I, I have processed thing, you know, things that I'm trying to sort out in my life. Yeah. A couple of people in the book be- then become characters as well, like yeah. Trip yeah. and and Raj the most from yeah. your, your four person group. And then there's Rebecca too. Um, and so, so how much did you talk with them about, these feel were because um it's it's also interesting because you say we in certain places mm. um almost as if you're speaking for the whole group mm. of anatomy first years mm. or or maybe any anatomy or any gross anatomy student mm. and i wonder what was um why did you make that choice the choice for to use the we um well i'm not sure about the exact i mean it probably depends a little bit on the place that you're talking about i know that um you know trip Trip and I became very dear friends, and uh, um, she and I talked a lot about um, kind of the processing of this, everything from the emotional weight of it to some of the humor that um, just necessarily transpires when you're doing a job every day, and things that you think you would never have found funny suddenly strike you as really hilarious. And uh, and so she was a great um, compatriot for me in this process. Um, but, you know, all students... Um, I think handle the experience very differently, just as anyone handles anything differently. But, you know, Raj, one of my uh, table mates was a very, um, uh, he was more, much more of a locked box. We didn't know how he was responding to the dissections and he wasn't really that emotive about it in lab. So, um, you know, so you sort of seek out the people that handle it the same way you do and you bounce your ideas off one another. And, um, uh, Trip was was a delight to have in my lab group, and I'm really lucky to have shared the experience with her. Oh, yeah, she comes through like that, um, as if it was she's a godsend in the yeah, situation. Well, yeah. let's let's take a short break, sure. um, and we'll be right back with Christine Montross. Thanks, T. <laughs>
soul is upside down. Terrible, terrible. Yeah, my brain is cloudy. My soul is upside down. I think I know what you mean. When I get that low down feeling, I know the blues must be someplace around. Oh, let's go from here. Well, you got to treat me right day by day. Uh -huh. Get out your little prayer book. Get out upon your knees and pray, cause you're gonna need, oh, you're gonna up. need my help someday. Welcome back. You're listening to The Living Writer Show. Um, today we have, if you're just um, tuning in, we have Dr. Christine Montross with us. And um, Christine went here uh, for her poetry MFA. And I actually have a question from um, one of the, also someone who graduated with a, my friend Charlotte. Um, she's a poet in town. And she said, um, how, if, did this happen for you that every so often, every uh, month or so for 15 seconds, you had this um, idea that you should go to a flash, that you should go to med school, and then it just disappeared. Like, how did you know to move from poems to med school? Yeah, that's a, um, it, it wasn't a flash. Um, my partner always says that I was false advertising because we actually met here in the MFA program in poetry. And she says, you know, when I met you, you're a poet. And now all of a sudden you've got a beeper and you're taking call at the hospital. And the whole doctor thing was a, a real um, bolt of lightning that caught both of us off guard. What happened um, to you is that... Um, I graduated from the MFA program, taught uh, some courses here at, at the university for a year, and then we moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, and I taught um, high school kids in a, in a public charter high school there, and it was... Um, uh, a group of kids that were really troubled and we had no money in the school. I was the entire English department. There were four faculty members. It was a ridiculous <laughs> endeavor. Um, however, um, these kids were just uh, really struggling. Lots of them had been expelled from other schools. Um, lots of them were on legal probation. They had very intense issues that they were dealing with in their lives outside of school. And it was a huge challenge to address, um, you know, literature and grammar with them in the classroom, given what was going on with them in their psychosocial lives. And I'd always been really interested in sort of ideas of madness and uh, mental illness. And a lot of my poems in the MFA program were sort of wrestling with, you know, the line between madness and divinity and um, sort of the history of mental illness. And so I had intellectually thought a lot about, uh, about psychological issues and um, had tossed around the idea of maybe doing a clinical psychology PhD, but that might've been my flash that came once a month and I ignored. Um, but I was, as I was working with these kids, you know, lots of them were on psychotropic medications and uh, I was just very aware that that was a big component of their lives. And I was very, um, I, I really enjoyed um, helping them navigate their probation officers, their parents, their um, after-school jobs, their challenges that they met in the classroom. And, and I became more and more interested in um, becoming a psychiatrist. So I actually went to medical school knowing that I wanted to do psychiatry. And, um, and so that, that was my path. So I think the ideas were present in the poetry. But um, no, it was, a, it was sort of a wrestling match with myself to say, no, do I really want to go through medical school? Because it's, you know, it's a daunting task. And um, and I'm not a girl who's who's innately good at chemistry and organic chemistry and all that. So a lot of it was sort of um, 
uh, a lot of it was a real effort for me to to take on. Uh, it, it, it's not a natural. Some of the sci- hard sciences are not natural strengths of mine. So, um, so that's that's how it happened. But no, uh, no, I wasn't a doc. One of those kids that knew they wanted to be a doctor all along. <laughs> well, well, do you have? Um, you brought some poems with you today. Um, so, do you have one of those? That's the sure. madness and divinity, oh. or 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 any or whatever. Or what what would you like to read Golly, for us today? See. I don't know if I have madness and divinity. Well. Uh, I brought one that's an old poem. I think I actually wrote in the MFA program here. Um, and it might speak a little more to, uh, maybe it relates to troubled teenagers. How's that? That sounds great. <laughs> okay. uh, this is called Temple. Um, this year, in his father's sometimes annual Christmas letter, a phone card, 15 minutes prepaid, the handwriting says, use this to call. If you don't want to talk to me, you could at least call your only grandmother. If you don't want to, send it back. It is better than the phone messages from Flagstaff in March or September when his father is crying. The biggest mistake I ever made was to leave you kids. Think your mama would ever take me back after all these years. He uses the phone card to call me and whispers, I just have to know if you ever loved me. I cup the receiver in my palm as if it's his chin and sing lullabies until his breath settles and the card expires. When we were 15, his mother poured us tall black Russians in soda glasses stacked with ice. Never had a better friend, she said, as if she'd been hired to and winked, her hand circling the drink just enough to keep it from dropping. She told me invented stories about her son as if he weren't there holding my hand. It got dark and she put on old Loretta Lynn records and danced. We were poor, but we had love. That's the one thing that daddy made sure of. The end of her Benson and Hedges menthol crumbled into a long inch of ash. Whirling, she asked, Am I not the best damn-looking 31-year-old mother you'd seen? I smiled and nodded. He stared at the crease of skin between his thumb and palm. His silence raised meanness into her flushing cheeks. Eyes narrowing, she bent until their faces were a short inch apart. Well, I'm all you've got, aren't I? He looked down in a way that apologized to us both. He knew what came next. If you had written even one letter while your daddy was stationed, maybe he wouldn't have been so lonely. Let go of my hand to peel away his cuticle until it bled. When he stood to get our coats, she brushed my hair back with a sparkling fingernail and exhaled warm breath and words into my ear. Sweetheart, I know someday you're going to give me my first grandbaby. You're just so good to him, left a florid kiss on my temple. When he returned, she was already on the couch and we were forgotten. He started the record again and closed the door behind us. We were quiet and a little drunk as we walked on the wet Indiana snow. Watching his feet imprint the ground, he said, We don't have to go all the way, but sometime would you let me inside you just to know how it feels? Thank you, Christine. Sure. Thank you. Um, it's it's great that you agreed to read a poem because you're on a book tour, right? Yeah. And, how, um, and now you're going to be going, like, reading from Body of Work yeah. at Shaman Drum and... Um, 
Well, maybe you can um, insist on reading poems all along the way, just when you want to shake some things up a little bit. Right. Now that I've got a forced captive audience, <laughs> you can't leave until you hear a poem. <laughs> it's a great idea. You know what? Um, you know, Sherman Alexie does that, actually. That right? When he, he's been um, touring with his book, Flight, yeah. and he reads um, a poem at the end. He's been um, doing that. So... Yeah, so feel free. Yeah. <laughs> Good, that's great. Um, well, so maybe we can... Um, thank you for that reading that poem, sure. too. It's always lovely to have a poem over the air. Um, maybe uh, we could talk a little bit, this is um, back to body of work, yeah. about... Um, about your cadaver briefly and then maybe we when we come back we'll talk about the structure of your book like sure. a, you sort of go from one structure to another yeah, yeah. <laughs> um could you tell us a little bit about the cadaver yeah so um our cadaver was a, a an elderly female cadaver and um you know one of the very strange things um about the uh, about the way that our anatomy lab handled the cadavers, and and I learned at researching the book that each lab does it a little differently. Um, but each of our um, bodies had their hands and feet and face wrapped in a kind of cheesecloth, um, and with ba- like literal clear plastic bags then tied over them. And um, that's a disquieting image, um, but. There was some. There were sort of mixed uh, messages about why that was done. Um, the practic- the pragmatic, practical reason that was given was that those are structures in the body that uh, tend to dry out very easily. And one of the things in dissection is that it's very important to keep um, the body parts moist, for lack of a better word, um, so that they're they've got the embalming solution and the 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 fluid there that keeps them from getting dry and um, brittle. Um, and those parts of the body, you know, being not having the sort of fat reserves that we do in other parts of the body, uh, they dry out very quickly. But I also think there was an element um, that was alluded to of kind of depersonalization too. So um, those are parts of the body that we really associate with humanity, you know, the hands, the the face, um, the head. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm not sure which reason weighed in more, but uh, so, you know, when I first saw her, she was, um, she was this sort of ghostly, almost apparition. The very real fact of her body was there and dead, but then there was this sort of shrouded face and, uh, and we weren't meant to dissect the face until the very end of the semester. So, um, so most of the bodies were fully dissected before, uh, any of the students saw the faces, but, uh, Tripler and I felt very strongly that that was strange. And I, you know, I think there's no right or wrong in how people react to, um, their cadavers, but we felt like before we, um, we went much, much further with her body that we wanted to look at her face and sort of know what we were dealing with. So, um, so after the first day of dissection, we went in and we cut the twine that was around her neck and lifted the bag off and unwrapped the gauze. And she was lovely. I mean, she was this beautiful elderly woman and, uh, and all of the the cadaver's hair had been um, shorn off, and uh, which that's talked about a little bit in the passage I'm going to read. But um, she was really just this beautiful, fine-featured um, elderly woman, and I think that for me that um, that really helped to inform the way I saw her. Not because she was 
you know, if she had not been physically beautiful, I would have felt differently about her. But I was really able to um, think of her more as a person with an identity when I saw her face. And uh, and so that was something that I really carried with me over the course of the dissection. Um, and I, I'm sure for some people that could make it harder for me. I think it made it easier. I think it would have been, uh, it, it, I don't know, it just didn't settle with me right to to go further. And, and you know, we, we know so little about the cadavers. We don't know um, what their names are. We don't know what they died from. We don't know how old they were. We don't know uh, what they did for jobs. D- again, different schools handled this differently. Some um, will say this was an 84-year-old teacher. Some will say this was a, you know, 76-year-old factory worker. Um, but we really knew very little about her. And so, um it felt important to to have some sense of, of who she was before, um, before we dissected her, even though that's really impossible. And so interesting that you and Tripler did that, the two of you, um, kind of, it's like a separate journey before the other people were ready to, you know, yeah, well, let's, let's take a a short break and we'll come back. Um, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor and we'll be right back. Haven't got a worry, haven't got a care, haven't got a thing to call my own. Though I'm out of money, I'm a millionaire. Tell me. I still have my home in San Antonio. When I greet my neighbor with a how you all, I'm wealthy as a king upon a throne. You can have your mansion or a cottage small. I'll just take my home in San Antonio. Welcome back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. Um, today, if you're just tuning in, we have Dr. Christine Montross with us. And um, she's in town with her new book, Body of Work, Meditations on Mortality from the Human Anatomy Lab. Um, Christine, will you, will you read a passage for us? Sure. I'm just going to uh, read a passage about um, the very beginning of dissection um, when, we, when we were first starting off. 
The Essential Anatomy Dissector, our textbook version of a roadmap for the term, reads simply, make the incisions shown in figure 1-1. The figure is a drawing of a naked woman, apparently in her 30s or 40s, who looks straight off the page with open eyes and appears to be alive. She is, however, conveniently in what we have learned is called anatomical position, which means that for this dissection she lies face up, with her arms at her sides and her palms facing the ceiling. She has a full head of hair, which our cadavers, we can tell through their shrouds, do not. Their heads have all been shorn, giving them a look that is part androgynous and part awful, like prisoners of war. When I mention this to a friend who is already a doctor, she tells me that the cadavers in her lab still had their hair, imagining how the hair would look after weeks of wetting solution and bone dust and how, early on, it might make them seem more human. I prefer our cadaver as she is. My sense of the humanity of our cadavers is evasive and shifting. One of the strangest things about dissecting a human body is the difference between a human body and a human being, in some ways readily identifiable and in others barely perceptible. Everything tangible that is human is present in our cadavers. Their dead body parts are structurally identical to our living ones. Our cadavers are undeniably human. Each bears distinguishing traits that evoke the life of an individual. Once her hands are uncovered, we learn that the woman at another group's table has lavender polish on her fingernails, and as a result of that lone variation, we find ourselves wondering about her. Did she have a weekly manicure appointment that she never missed over the last 20 years for vanity and to share confidences with her manicurist? Did she live in a nursing home which had a beauty day that she initially resisted, eventually acquiescing only to love the experience of her first manicure but hate the old lady color? Did her granddaughter paint her nails on her annual visits, despite the old woman's inability to recognize the girl after the ravages of Alzheimer's? Was the polish a preparation for a dinner date, an anniversary, a wedding, a funeral? We can make cuts through our cadavers and peel their skin away. We can trace the paths of their circulatory systems and marvel at the fragility of vein and strength of nerve. We can curse the difficulty in finding a tiny artery in the thumb or neck and even laugh at our ineptitudes and mishaps, but the humanity of, our, of the body emerges in unexpected moments, and the balance of our voyage of discovery with the voyage of a finished life is sometimes difficult to steady. Dissection, we will learn, will require us to turn off, in a sense, our connection with this humanity. I cannot say whether for me that is a conscious or subconscious decision. I take a deep breath and I focus on the dissector, on the scalpel, and how much pressure is required to go deeply enough to proceed, but not so deeply as to do damage. And I do this, this breathing and focusing and gauging and cutting for hours. The work is slow and deliberate, and this first morning of lab will bleed into the afternoon and then the evening with all groups progressing forward little by little. The skin of the chest pulls back easily after we have made in the incisions, and the body opens like a book. Thumbs inserted at the midline of the chest above the sternum or breastbone pull back both sides like the covers of a text, revealing the ribs and the muscles that connect them. In the female cadavers, the breasts, firm and set in an unchanging shape by the embalming process, remain attached to the skin. They are removed from the body when the folds of skin over the chest are peeled away and replaced when the skin is pulled back over our day's dissection. It is as if the breasts are part of a strange vest, 
as if this marker of gender can in death be slipped off or on. When it is time to cut through the rib cage, none of my group members wants to do it. Neither do I, really, but I do, not to be macho and not to force myself through something unpleasant or difficult, but because I need to know what I'm capable of. I do not know whether I will be able to do it until I do. I'm almost surprised when the body does not flinch or cry out when cut, and so, just as the humanity of our cadavers asserts itself in nail polish and tattoos, the inverse of humanity emerges in the body's utter lack of response to profound wounds. Thank you, Christine. Thanks. Sure. It's interesting that you picked that part because that's one of the parts that um, that I was asking you about earlier, the, the choice of we. using we. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, it, it, is that too much of a question that it's no. hard to answer? Because it's a is it because maybe it's a style thing or a way a sense of of um, conveying. Uh, more of the the depth of the situation i yeah i think that there is um there is a a sort of collective um you know i think that part where i'm talking about you know we can make cuts and we can do these things but we can't totally understand it i think i just feel like um that's a pretty collective experience um maybe that's <laughs> now I'm second guessing whether no. I should. <laughs> no. Interesting, okay. Key. Where were you yeah, when no. I was writing? It? No, no. Um, I, I think I think you know a, a bit. At many times, I felt as though um, I just felt part of this. Uh, you know, every medical student in America walks in on their first day of medical school and does this, and it's a very um, it's it's a real initiation. And I think that um, I think I felt a, a part of that. Um, current group and also the historical group and um, it was just very clear to me that anatomists through time uh, up into and including us have have been able to chart uh, and name and discover and explain all of these details about the body and yet there are these big unanswerable questions and and um, those are things that's that that's that boundary that we all encounter. So, so maybe that's the royal we. <laughs> no, and that does. I thank you. I, sure, <laughs> you got it. Yeah, <laughs> that. I, yeah, I think that that's actually the the feeling that um, that I uh, I believe did come across from that. What you just articulated yeah. then. So, um, so, so you. Um, so back to what you also just read for us, yeah. the parts. Um, so basically your, your introduction to your cadaver. Um, would you tell us a little bit about, because being a, a poet in nature, you would be probably big on uh, the names and the, yeah. the naming of things. So this is, um, this turned out to be one of those uh, stories that was actually a little bit funny, though one doesn't expect that anything about anatomy will be funny and then turned out to be meaningful in different ways as well. But, um, so we were, um, getting ready for the abdominal dissection. By this point we had, um, we had dissected the thorax. So that's the part of the body that, you know, that is encased by the rib cage, holds the heart and lungs. And, uh, we'd done some work on the arm and, and we peeled back this, uh, cloth that was covering, uh, our cadavers abdomen to get ready for the abdominal dissection and um it was this totally smooth uh belly buttonless abdomen and um we were just 
totally mystified. And, and it, you know, at first we thought, well, this is because we don't know anything about being doctors yet. Otherwise we'd have some lucid and easy explanation for this. And the fact was there was no, I mean, no one could understand. I mean, how do you not have a belly button, right? You have to be attached to the placenta some way. Um, we called our anatomy professor over and he said, well, you know, maybe she, um, had surgery and, and, uh, you know, it was sort of sewn over and, and we said, but there's no scar. And, um, and then Raj very quietly and astutely said, well, maybe we got Eve. And, and, um, it was the perfect moment. And, you know, there's a long tradition of naming cadavers. And, um, I think if you would have asked me before, uh, anatomy, I would have said, oh, I think that's disrespectful. You know, this woman had a name. She doesn't need to be named by me. But there was something about that particular moment. And then the name, which, you know, was a riot because of the fact that she didn't have a belly button. But also, you know, this was really a first woman for me. This was the body that became the foundation of my medical knowledge. And uh, and so not to add gravitas to a situation that was a little bit light, but it was, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, that's just perfect. You know, that's just exactly who she is. And, uh, and you know, especially with the history of anatomy that was so um, outlawed and forbidden and, you know, knowledge was forbidden. And um, so I think that metaphor of her name just turned out to to suit, you know, I hesitate to say suit her perfectly, not knowing at all who she was. It suited me perfectly in the experience that I had with her. And uh, and I grew to kind of love it. And so I, I refer to her as Eve through the book. And I think of her that way. And, uh, and I hope that um, were her family to know that or were she to know that, that that would um, seem as something that actually turned out to be quite a gesture of, of respect and admiration in the long run. And, and in, in, in the epilogue as well, I think that that it couldn't have been the epilogue that it is without having her named um, something and just all the, yeah, it just makes, it makes sense, Christine. And I think, you know, there's that sense of, it's it's a very weird thing to enter in a, re- a relationship with what's in essence an inanimate object. I mean, the body in that stage is an inanimate object. And to have a relationship that is totally one-sided, you know, it's sort of like the far, as a psychiatrist, it's like the far extreme of psychoanalysis. You know, whatever I attached to her personality-wise, characteristic-wise, that was all me. You know, there was no, nothing that she was contributing, but... um but yeah, it, it felt right for someone that I spent that amount of time with to have her have a name by which I thought of her. Yeah, more human on, on your part to respond that way. Maybe, maybe, yeah. <laughs> well, well, let's take a short break sure. and then we'll come back and talk a bit about the structure. Sounds good, T. Aboard this train, everybody get on, ready, let's go, boys. Kick it off, Leon, kick it off.
welcome back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and I'm here today with Christine Montross. Um, and so we have this lovely book of yours, Body of Work, Christine. And um, it really is actually just lovely to look at it. And again, this is <laughs> radio. I just You just have to trust me on this, folks. Are you jealous <laughs> that you can't see it? <laughs> but soon you can see it. Um, although the picture on the cover, it is sort of misleading when you were talking about the cheesecloth and the bag over the head. Yeah. It's a very peaceful cover that's presented. Yeah. But the interior of the book, the, the structure of the inner design, um, each chapter chapter is titled with these these wonderful um, almost poetic titles I keep I keep kind of banging the drum on the poetic <laughs> angle here um, but there's a, so that each chapter has like a, a, a very important a title it has um, an old medical drawing that 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 opens the chapter and and also a quote um, from a famous uh, anatomy this people in anatomy's history uh, scientists um, poets um, so the the book is really wonderful in that that structure that you you've introduced and and how he spoke at the beginning um, that this book is many many pieces within itself there's like the 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 story the narrative that runs through that's almost a chronology of your time mm -hmm. and the reflections and and the, the the past history that you weave in how how did you how did you go about writing this book uh and and was it in different pieces yeah. and you moved the pieces together using dreams as transitions what yeah so so yes and yes to, uh, to all those questions um, <laughs> too many questions uh, no, no, at no, once. No. um it was it was really fun i mean um what happened was um the narrative the sort of narrative backbone which is a horrible pun that i just made <laughs> um, excuse me had to be done. um uh was really the dissection of the semester. So I always saw as the through line, you know, beginning with the the t entire whole body and and progressing through the body, and that was going to be the through line. Um, but it was it was actually a real challenge for me um, because I got very interested in the history of anatomy, and then I was also writing the book to answer a question that I um, didn't answer earlier. Um, it, you know, I was writing it for three or four years um, over the course of medical school. And so um, these other, I would have these other experiences, you know, the first two years of medical school are preclinical years. You're just reading from books and memorizing like crazy. And the second two years are clinical years where you're treating patients and on the wards and up all night and delivering babies and standing in the operating room. And so um, those kinds of moments began to, to also shape the way that as I was reworking the dissection material, you know, I was having all of these new experiences with the human body where I was seeing the living body um, in childbirth and in surgery and in the psychiatric wards. And so, um, and that makes appearances. There's moments where you're talking about patients where you move to the third year and yeah. you, you, you do, you jump there a little bit out. Yeah. And that was, that was really, that was a real challenge for me to manage within the parameters of the book because I wanted to, you know, initially I thought, okay, well, um, should we just have chapters that are, uh, anatomy dissection and then we'll have a historical chapter and then we'll have a clinical chapter. And that, you know, that really did not work. It, um, it felt very, um, disjointed. Uh, it was hard to keep track of. Uh, then I, I've kind of front loaded the history, uh, 
I felt like then we'd lost track of the fact that we were in the anatomy lab. So it really became a kind of attempt at blending the three. And um, I have to give credit. One of the wonderful things of being partnered with a writer, my partner Deborah, who uh, you know I met in the master and the MFA program here as a poet, and she's now a playwright. Um, we each have very different. Um, strengths in writing and she's just a structural genius so um I would very uh you know I'd come tearing my hair out to her and she would make these wild stacks of well what if happened if you put pages 222 to 27 right here behind page 39 and I'd go well I can't do well yes I can do that because it works beautifully so that was a true team effort and and she's a really gifted reader and editor so that was um I, I definitely got some help with her from just the physical structuring. And then your other questions about uh, the drawings and the dreams and the researched parts. I mean, the great thing about this book was, um, you know, I got to go to Italy and look at all these kooky anatomical theaters and um, look for saints' bodies that were cut up in pieces in um, churches, and um, that's fun. <laughs> so, um, so I wanted to incorporate all that because it was just wildly interesting, also. And um, and yeah, initially the dreams, which were my dream life, was so vivid during. Um, anatomy, which I think is not unusual. I think that when your mind is trying to process things, it doesn't have time to process during the day. They often seep into your dream life. And uh, and initially, those dreams were sort of companion pieces to the text where um, they would be these kind of poetic interludes where uh, interspersed between the chapters were these kind of surreal dream moments. Um, and again, it just felt like uh, it was too separate. So I really tried to incorporate that um, more into the the narrative flow because the reality was I was sort of dealing with it all in one piece. And, and sometimes pieces of the dreams would come up when I was dissecting and certainly dissection would make its way into the dream. So it was all kind of a jumble. Um, so I don't know. So this, this spatial structure that yeah. you used was actually really getting at the truth of things because that's that is like the experience yeah. where you're, it's it's not as if it's just this one linear you know Neat first day here's the heart yeah. last day here's the brain yeah right um, and I think you know I I as anyone who writes a book you want to end up with in some place different where you've started and I got really frustrated well why you know they're it, it didn't feel totally linear and I would sort of backslide and, you know, I would feel like I understood more and then I would feel like I understood less and I would um, be less upset by dissection and then I would be more upset with dissection. And it just, the reality was that was just the way it was. So um, I think I tried to be really true to the fact that it wasn't, um, it wasn't always a neat and clean narrative and the the drawings I mean um, I love those drawings there these old Vesalius woodcuts um, and Vesalius is this 16th century sort of father of anatomy um, the wonderful moments with him in the book thanks and, and you know that was really the reason I went to Italy I joke about you know eating pasta and seeing art but um, you know he really revolutionized anatomical teaching by encouraging hands-on dissection and uh, and he has this um, this critical foundational text um, on the fabric of the human body and there are these unbelievably beautiful woodcuts interspersed in them that show the anatomy um, in its various stages of dissection so the 
the figures are progressively more and more flayed. Um, but they're these sort of li- very lifelike, lovely looking bodies. And uh, the Brown uh, Rare Books Library has a copy of the prints, which unfortunately the the wood cuts themselves were destroyed in the World War II bombing. So there are a very limited number of the prints, but the Brown John, Brown's John Hay Library just by, like, them. serendipitous. Yeah. That's wonderful. They actually have a couple sets, and one of them is bound in human skin, which is just way too creepy. <laughs> but, wow. Um, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but, which I guess was a thing that happened in the um, 17 1800s. It was, a, it was sort of a, a trend. Um, but, but, but the woodcuts themselves are gorgeous, and I was really happy that they gave permission to let me use them in the book because I just think they're beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it, it, yeah, it serves to deepen the, the work at around it yeah and it's hard you know it's a visual thing so um you know i'm trying to convey what these structures look like Mm -hmm. and it's really nice sometimes to get a little help from 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 an art a visual artist so um, i was really happy with the way the book turned out it is it's a lovely book yeah everyone will hopefully people will get a chance to see it not that we keep tempting them about (laughs) oh it's a great book um um and and so when you when you were going through these drafts, Christine, did you also think, um, well, there I, I need a little bit more of this, like for the balance of the work? Did that yeah. happen? So you kind of went back and found another um, note about um, Vesalius? Yeah, and- certainly. I think that happens in revision. The main thing um, that I was conscious of in that regard to you was... Um, the book had the potential to be really dark. I mean, yes. the book had the potential to really be a downer. And so I was very aware that um, though there was a lot that was upsetting, there was also a lot that was wonderful. I mean, the, just the the sheer just sense of discovery and enlightenment and um, the excitement that you feel. How the body learning. works. Yeah. It's, it's just a, um, so I wanted to make sure that that balance didn't get out of whack so that the reader didn't get, you know, 75 pages in and I can't possibly turn another page. I mean, it's a book that's necessarily about death and mortality. And there, you know, there are some elements of it that um, are pretty descriptive of the dissections. And yet my hope is that there's a real sense in the book of that wonder that goes along with it. And, and there is humor in the book as well. I mean, and, and I, I really hope it doesn't, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel like irreverent humor. It feels like, um, just the natural progression of, of a job. And, uh, and so and of understanding like a being with something and then understanding. Yeah. With, um, but humor with respect, respectful I hope humor. So. I hope so. That's the way it felt. Um, and, and so, so I think, so you're saying that this is a, like, take this book to the beach, take yeah. it to the pool. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, although I have a funny, if we have time for just a funny story, I have oh, a, yes, a, yeah. a nephew who's nine and a niece who's seven. And, um, uh, here I am with my first book and I thought, well, you know, it would be what, I would just think was nice. I'd send them each a copy of it and I'd write a little note inside and they can stick it on their shelves. And then someday, you know, they'll read it and, um, I'll, I hope they'll like it and it'll just be a part of their library. And I love these kids, Andrew and Sarah and Andrew, um, calls me and they call me Beanie. Hey Beanie, got your book today. Um, I'm on chapter two, first cut. And <laughs> I sort of spit my drink across the room and, you know, I'm a parent, so I'm not, um, 
I, I should have thought of this beforehand, but I don't know why it never dawned on because me. Because they're my going to read it. Nine year old um, nephew would read it. And you know, my brother was great about it. He said, Well, first of all, I think there are a lot of words in it he doesn't understand, but he likes it. And, you know, it's not like there's anything in here that's so uh, alarming that we couldn't talk to him about it. But um, yeah, the, uh, the intended audience was not a nine year old. However, <laughs> um, I did, I did, in all seriousness, um, not want it to be a book that was, that people would put down and think, oh, I just feel miserable and awful. You know, it's a it's a book that's about the reality of this experience, but it's also, I hope, in some ways, an, an uplifting um, sense of of um, of this gift that uh, that a stranger gave to me so that I could learn how to try and heal people. Well, well, thank you. That's that's let's end there because that's I think that's wonderful. Thank you, Christine, for You're being here. To. And again, the book body of work meditations on mortality from the human anatomy lab about dr christine montross um you've been listening to the living writers show uh thanks to Chaz barrett as always and uh until next time and Freeform. Important scientific studies show that Freeform Radio is part of a healthy lifestyle. 
As delicious as a TV dinner and as safe as nuclear energy, Freeform Radio is everyone's best companion. So remember, kids, eat plenty of red meat, get lots of sunshine, and tune into WCBN 88.3 FM, Radio Free Ann Arbor. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, August 8, 2007. From KPFK in L.A., I'm Aura Bogado. Trade becomes a hot topic on the Democratic campaign trail, with candidates appealing to those critical of so-called free trade. A new wave of violence grips Guatemala just one month before elections. We'll hear from Guatemala City. And, frustrated at Congress's failure to pass immigration reform, 41 states have introduced more than 1,400 immigration laws so far this year. All that and more after the headlines. I'm Shannon Young with today's headlines. The U.S. military has claimed to have killed 30 militants during a raid and subsequent airstrike on the Sadr City district of Baghdad. The Pentagon issued a statement saying the U.S. forces targeted Shiite militants with ties to Iran and that no civilians were killed. The statement contradicts witnesses interviewed by the Associated Press, who say at least nine civilians were killed in today's attack. The Sadr City raid comes on the eve of a major holiday, expected to draw hundreds of thousands of Shiite pilgrims to Baghdad. The leaders of North and South Korea will 